Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Ashes Central podcast. Of course, the summer of cricket, uh, the Ashes, Australia v England, kicking off in just two days from now on Wednesday, uh, the 8th of December. Uh, and we're back here to have a little preview show uh, before we get into all the action. We've got a bit of news to go through. Obviously, last time we were here, November 19th, we went through um, the fallout of the Tim Payne saga, obviously resigning as captain um, due to the sexing scandal. Since then, of course, stepped away from cricket. Australia confirmed the last couple of spots that were up in the air about their side. England yet to do so, but um, they managed to get in a little bit of um, warm-up matches, practice matches, so we've got a bit to talk about there. And then, obviously, moving on to the Gabba, um, where there's always going to be a factor um, and what we think, uh, how the series might have changed based on the last couple of weeks. Uh, my name is Vaship. Joining me, uh, Ethan Prabs and Pearson Lynch. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. Thanks for having us on again. Uh, good to have you here. Okay, we'll get straight into it with Australia. Obviously, the big news was Tim Payne. As I said, we recorded on the day um, when he resigned as captain. Um, Prabs obviously wasn't here with, with us, but we had a little discussion about who we thought. We thought probably Cummins was probably the obvious, the safe pick, the um, groom successor, whereas Smith, a little bit more of a controversial pick. Um, in the end, on November the 26th, Cricket Australia announced officially Cummins would be the next Australian captain um, first uh, bowler since Ray Linwell in the late 50s, um, first ever full-time bowler. Stephen Smith, the vice-captain, but um, I guess you feel that that'll be quite a hands-on vice-captain role. Bowlers often got to focus on their bowling, so someone like Steve Smith sitting in second slip, especially with Carey, who's a less experienced keeper than Payne, um, to do a lot of the lifting in that sense. Um, as I said, perhaps you weren't here with us last time. Number one is kind of, is that what you're expecting, Cummins? And number two, do you think that Smiths will have quite a hands-on role in that vice-captain role? Yep, I've got to say I've, I agree with everything you just said. I think it was the obvious choice to pick uh, Cummins. I think he fills that poster boy role that we're looking for. Smith, while you know you could argue that he's probably more um, suited to it tactically, he's probably too controversial, and there's no real reason uh, not to pick Cummins. I mean, you can raise the, the point that he is a bowler, but I think that excuse is only going to last for some time, um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how he goes in that role and how long he takes to adjust to it. Uh, I think he's said himself that Smith will have a elevated vice-captaincy role. Um, what that'll involve, I guess we're not too sure, but maybe he will be taking over for periods of the game. Um, and if those two can work well together, then, yeah, there should be no real dramas in that department. Indeed. There's a, a lot of mental fortitude that goes into bowling. Um, Pearson, now it's official. Do you think this will detract in any way from Cummins bowling? Or is that why he has Smith then uh, there? So he can kind of hand over the reins to him and focus solely on his bowling because he would have to agree is quite a big part of, you know, whether or not Australia go towards having a dom dominant win. Well, it, it's, I think... it's the... Oh, yeah. it's, the, it's the thank you. It's it's the it's the expected call. I think it's definitely the safe call. I do think the fact he's a pace bowler will cause more issues than people like to admit. There was an excellent article actually by Michael Atherton today in the Times discussing his problem. So our well, England's greatest captain was Mike Brealy, and he suggests pace bowling captains should be an absolute last resort, which arguably in this case it was a last resort. Will he work? It's up for debate. We've looked at Flintoff was very poor as a captain. Bob Willis had an unsuccessful period. Australians almost exclusively don't pick captains. But regardless of whether he's capable and whether he can handle it, I think he was the only call they could make. Go perhaps now. Yeah, I think it's uh, different people play it different ways. Some people <laughs> like to use the captaincy to elevate their performance and others try and keep things separately. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see which which uh, route Cummins goes down. I think I think it'll be the same. I'd be surprised if anything um, gets taken away from the bowling, um, but we'll see how he goes as to which route he takes. And indeed, that leads into a whole other conversation about how crucial it is having a good captain or bad captaincy. Um, and we don't want to open that can of worms now. Um, so Australia still had two or three slots that you felt were up for grabs. Obviously, you had the keeping spot with Payne taking indefinite leave from the sport uh, with mental health concerns. We weren't even sure if he would have been selected. We know Justin Langer was in his in his camp, but it was down to the um, selectors. George Bailey, obviously chairman selector, a fellow Tasmanian. But um, in the end, came down to Alex Carey, Josh Inglis. Um, Carey played a, quite a relatively experienced in international cricket. He's captain at international level before, um, has been groomed as a successor a few years now. Inglis, less of a, a known commodity around Australia, but very good, a very good run of form recently in domestic cricket. Um, ultimately, they go with Kerry, which again feels like the safe pick. Um, we'll start with you here on this one, Prabs. Um, again, we were expecting, and what are you expecting from him um, when he finally makes his debut on the test stage on Wednesday? Yeah, I was expecting Kerry, although I was secretly hoping we'd uh, pick English and, and go for something outrageous. Um, yeah, you're right. He's the safe pick. I think probably nothing spectacular from him, but some safe stuff. He should be fine behind the wicket. Um, maybe contribute a little bit with the bat, sort of playing the Tim Payne role, um, if you may. I think with Kerry and Inglis, yeah, as you mentioned, Kerry experience. Inglis, probably they view him as not ready quite yet, although you might raise the issue with if we're playing so many ICC tournaments every year, he might get a limited run at uh, Sheffield Shield level being in all those white ball squads. So it might be the only real opportunity we have to pick him and might be his best case now, but we'll go with Kerry and we'll see how he goes and I guess he's got a bit of batting to do to keep his spot in the future series to come. Yeah, well, that's going to be a big part of it, how he performs. I mean, Brad hadn't, you know, it's obviously came to his best when it was an Ashes series. He used to score a lot of runs. We all remember that 2013-14 series. And Pearson, we discussed this, and I was very much for Kerry. And my other point was, I guess, they got a history. So you look at Adam Gilchrist, almost 30, when he got his first chance um, after Ian Healy. And same thing with Brad Haddon, very experienced keepers. So, and additionally, with pain and all this fallout, you felt like one additional risk probably wasn't as a smart thing to do. Um, you know, go for the safes option and solidify off. And do, 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 you, do you see that as, I guess, coming off, you know, in a positive way for Australia? Well, it's, it's George Bailey's very interesting one because George Bailey, of course, is famous for his adventurous white ball batting, hitting James Anderson for, I believe, 28 off and over in an Ashes series. However, he's gone for the moat. He's reverted to type completely with an extremely safetyist approach to selection here. And an article came out yesterday, I believe, that suggested originally when he came in, he wanted to pick four new players for this Ashes series. And he was talked out of it into this safety line of picking tried and tested players. I think with the controversy we've seen with Payne, that does make sense. I agree actually with Ethan here that... Inglis probably has the highest ceiling. But I think in a situation where you just want stability, you probably want a more established international player. He's also been around the test squad. This is Kerry for a sustained period. Of course, he was selected in the South Africa squad that didn't go ahead, whereas Inglis was not even in the Australia A side at that stage. So it's it's pretty well choreographed, and I think it is the right call. Yet again, someone like a Moses on Riggs course was selected in a test squad and now finds himself on the outside. So not always the rule, but I agree with you there. And I mean, I was, th- I read that article also when he said, you know, he was talked out of it. I'm trying, 
they changed the selectors so often. I'm not even sure who's in the other roles at the moment, but it, it almost shocked me that he's already the head selector because, of course, Trevor Hons was in the role and then um, he came in. It feels like he's only been in the role for, I don't know, if it's more or less than a calendar year, but it doesn't feel like that long. Obviously, COVID haven't played as many tests, but yeah, it did feel like maybe it's a good thing that he was talked out for it, let him get into the role a bit more because he's certainly, as you said, more of a white ball cricketer, a lot more success in there uh, and new to the role. Uh, the next kind of couple of slots, I mean, there was a lot of questions about Mitchell Stark. Um, quite an experience, but the most experienced member, I mean, alongside Nathan Lyon of that uh, force from the bowling attack struggle. We've talked about his struggles towards the end of series, more of a, perhaps a white ball bowler. Shane Warne, who's never short of an opinion, came out with um, his uh, preferred 11 and, you know, had some had English in, the, English in there from memory and also had uh, Richardson in Brisbane instead of Stark. Stark gets the position. Um Think, I'm interested to see what you guys think. I think we'll certainly still see Richardson. You, you think the smart thing to do is what both of you have suggested. Um, maybe Stark three, Richardson two, or maybe even you get Hazelwood as a rotation out there. Cummins is the only one you think will probably play all five. Obviously, he's captain now, so he has a say in that. But um, how much of Richardson do you think we'll see? We'll start with you on this one, Pearson. Well, I, I'd expect some Richardson. I think I think Australia have made the right call with Stark. I mean, we have seen Stark is... Well, he's the best out there with the pink ball, which pretty much guaranteed in the second test. And, of course, on to lead into that, you want match practice, hence the first test, on a largely or more spin-friendly wicket than most in Australia that gather. So it worked for him to have the left arm angle and the footholds for Lyon. So I'd expect him guaranteed for the first two. Dependent on his performance in those first two, we'll probably see either him stick him staying for the remainder of the series, possibly only four, because he has, as we've noted in previous podcasts, tired often in series. But I do think he's guaranteed the first two. If he performs, he'll play the third. And then it will come down to fitness and performance levels to whether Joe Richardson does play. I wouldn't expect Joe Richardson to play more than two tests, though. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Perhaps obviously bowlers, they always want to play. So at some stage, it has to be a question of whether he's willing to say, look, I'm not up to it, bring someone else in, or it's got to be quite a forceful change there. But you thinking along the same lines, he obviously plays in Brisbane, plays in the in the pink ball test. And then who knows, you might get another pink ball test down the line that's undecided as yet and move on to that. But um, what are your thoughts on that line? Yeah, it does shift planning a bit if that fifth test is a pink ball test. Uh, I do agree with Pearson. <laughs> Pencil him in for the first two. Jai Richardson... One, one or two tests somewhere in there. Um, but I think we saw last summer staff will tie around that um, probably four test marks. So it'll be interesting to see if they rest him for the fourth test, maybe take um, a bit of precaution and rest him for the third. But yeah, I'm not expecting him to play all five and Richardson will come in and fill that gap. And then, yeah, if they believe Hazelwood needs a rest as well, then Jai is going to be ready to go. Okay, okay. Uh, we'll move on because we're a bit short on time. The number five spot, that was another one. We toed and froed. You've got Kawaja, more experienced, hasn't been seen since the last Ashes, but has success on Australian soil. Um, Travis Head, Young was once a captaincy prospect, got dropped. Dismal series, well, in my opinion, at least last summer against India. Um, and they announced again yesterday when they announced the full squad that Head's done it. Um, he's done enough to impress his elected to get the job. Um, starting with Kawaja, though, uh, and perhaps go with you first on this one. Do you think that, I mean, Kawaja is obviously also in line for that opener's role, do you think? Um, if you had to, I guess, estimate at the moment, do you think it's more likely that he comes in to replace Marcus Harris first or Travis Head? I think I think Travis Head is certainly the weakest spot. I'm not sure how Will Bukowski is re- recovering, but we've got fingers crossed on him. But I think the selectors will have 
uh, much more faith in Harris than Travis Head. I think Head seems to disappoint at the international level uh, almost every year, and I view his selection as sort of a last, a last string sort of things, saying, okay, here's your last chance at proving your international level before we give you an extended break. Um, and so I think, yeah, once if he fails to fire, then it'll be Kwaja likely replacing him, whereas I think they're keen to give Harris the series because if Bukowski is out for a bit, then Harris is going to have to open for us for a while. Yeah, and people say Kawaja's so much older. I think it's three or four-year difference. It's not massive. Obviously, she just played a lot more cricket. She started when he was very young at the international level. Pearson, is it almost not the same situation for Kawaja? Say he does come in and test three or four and fails. That could be it for him at the international level, could it not? Yeah, both, both of them largely playing for their test career at this point. Not, not in a hugely dissimilar vein, actually, to someone like Johnny Bairstow, who I imagine we'll get to in the England setup. Head is being essentially viewed as a last chance saloon for him. So if he has a solid series after his 40 plus, he can cement his spot. He will, at least you'd imagine, he'll be in professional cricket for at least the next decade. Kwaja is younger. However, I do, th- sorry, not younger, he is older. However, I do think he has considerably less years left in him than Head does. Now, I do think Kawaja is the better choice. I think he would have scored more runs. But I think Australia still do have one eye to the future and think there are more benefits to reap by a great head series than there are by a great Kawaja series. Okay, and we'll just confirm. I think you probably uh, hinted at it then. Just in one word, was it the right decision? Would you have gone with Kawaja, both of you? One word, Pearson first. Kawaja. Perhaps. I'm the same, Kawaja. Yeah, well, I think we're all agreed on that one. Um, and worth mentioning, Travis Head, what, 13 test matches in Australia, averages 47, but uh, Kawaja, 24, averages 53, and he got a massive 100 in the last time uh, England were on Australian soil in the SCG test. Um, so, I mean, we mentioned the 11 was officially named um, for uh, the Brisbane test. We've got Warner Head, Lubbershane Smith, uh, not Warner, sorry, Warner Harris, Lubbershane Smith, Head at five there, Green, Carey, Cummins, Stark, Lyon and Hazelwood. And as for 12th man, I don't believe it was officially announced. It'll probably be Michael Neeser. Um, He kind of has a nice home in that position. Uh, the English will move on to it. I know Pearson is desperate to get onto it. Um, obviously, they're not able to play Australian size. Normally, they play some traditional warm-up matches versus Prime Minister's Eleven and so on, maybe a domestic side. But with COVID and all, not able to do that, Pearson. I believe seven days they had set aside towards practice matches, inter-squad affairs, obviously rain in Queensland, down to two and a bit. Um, a few things to take away. I, I want to start with the first thing that came to mind for me was this idea that Bairstow was playing and perhaps Bairstow was seen to be as a head of Pope in the race um, for that middle order spot. What are your thoughts on that? I think Besto is ahead in this race. I don't think he should be. I think it will be a terrible call to not pick Pope. I must admit I am slightly biased. I view Pope in a very high light on this one. I think we've seen Pope, of any player in English cricket, is better at cashing in on flatter wickets. Of course, his home ground is the Oval, which is where the fifth test is always played in home Ashes series which is generally considered the most batting-friendly pitch in the country. He averages 99 there. The idea that he can bat well on those pitches and average 50 in South Africa with very similar conditions suggests he should be selected. However, England have a thing about Johnny Bairstow, and we keep going back to him. It's not purely an Ashes thing. It's, I think, the allure of him performing so well in white ball cricket, arguably, is he is 
possibly in the top five greatest overs in the history of ODI cricket. That does make people think if he has a good series, he can really punish the Australians. Of course, he had a solid Ashes in 2017-18. However, he is the third lowest average of any top six bats since then. So I'd be going for Pope any day on this one. Yeah, rightio. And perhaps it's almost like it seemed like the opposite to what Australia has done, where they had a similar option. I mean, it's not the same because Pope's ever played in Australia, but head kind of similar, not played a lot. You know, not exactly the same, but a similar situation. They've got any more experienced players, played a lot of test cricket, a younger one. It seems like they're going for the safer option, the opposite of what Australia did, picking Bearstow. Um, we have, as, as Pearson mentioned, we have seen Bearstow over here, Pope, not a lot of test cricket. Um, none in Australia. What do you think of the move? And would you have been a bit more daring? I mean, it's tough to say from the English perspective, but um, do you think it was the right move? I don't think it was the right move. I think England have thought, let's just go the safe option to really build our, our batting up best. Those made runs in the past. But if you look at the England camp, they've got real match winners in that batting lineup. But the issue is Crawley and Pope, who can take the game away from you with a really big score. They're both you know, likely not going to play. Um, and so I think I would have taken the risk. And you also get that ex- experience for the future, which might be invaluable. Yeah, indeed. Uh, in 20, Just looking here, in 2017-18, he scored that 100, Johnny Bear. So at Perth, average, what, 34 for the series. Pearson, you probably know better than me. That would have been towards the upper level for averages from that from that touring squad. Yes, well, they were, he scored one of the three tons on the tour. Him and Milan scored one each in a lengthy partnership at the Wacker, and then Alistair Cook, of course, scored his marathon 244 at the MCG. He wasn't brilliant, but he was probably one of our more dependable batsmen in that series. Yeah, and from what we've seen from most of England's test bats in Australia over the past 20 years, 34s, you know, look, looking roses, obviously, Alistair Smith had a couple of great series, but um, obviously he's not there anymore. Uh, so some other points, spinners, talk about it. Leach, the only one in the squad, Pearson, full-time, that is. Um have you got any hints from the practice matches whether or not he will play and does the weather, we'll get onto it later, but the fact that we are almost certainly looking at a shortened match factor into whether or not he's playing in Brisbane? Uh, I, well, I think people read too much into these practice matches. We got through seven sessions out of a possible 21. That's probably not sufficient. Of course, we had on the final day of the three days of play, we actually got, there wasn't even a scorecard because of the unusual nature of reinserting batsmen over and over who weren't scoring runs. Leach wasn't great in the warm-up, and I am always concerned with England that they won't pick spin bowlers. But I do think no matter what test, because it's in Australia, one of Wood or Leach must play in every test for the point of difference. I don't mind which one it is. And personally, I wouldn't select off a weather forecast because if that's wrong, that causes serious issues that it's override. Yeah, and it's a fair point. Prabs and I were discussing off air. There is a lot of uniform, medium pace. You've got Wood, who is the pace to differ up from that. And then you, you have a spinner. Is it a similar thinking for you, Prabs? You need that variance and whether or not it is Wood or Leach, one of them has to play? Yep, I think so. I think that's probably the reason why Wokes won't get too much of a game is because he's just too... Uh, like the other three, Robinson, Broad and Anderson. Uh, but yeah, whether you're going to have anything raw pace or spin um, can provide a valuable change up. And you just don't know if that's what's going to do the magic on the day and tear the Australians apart. Yeah, indeed. And of course, the English might not be able to resist playing Leach. He's a bit of a cult hero now from a, a one not out, um, I believe, in that, in that match at Headingley. But um, as I always seem to bring up when we discuss spinners, hasn't been friendly in Australia for them. Graham Swan retired. Ashley Giles 
shouldn't have been playing in the first place, but got a couple of games in 2006, seven. Uh, and then Monty Panesar, who was quoted earlier this week as saying that he's um, found a lot more hostile environments in Luton in playing in um, more domestic levels of cricket in England than he would in Australia, which I think, to be honest, I think it was a bit of a joke with Monty. He was a bit of a cult figure, someone that the the Australians less hated than just found amusing. But um, I think that's a discussion for another time. So talking of the bowling quartet, who do we expect to see? Um, you know, the choices are there. Um, the old firm, we've talked about Broad and Anderson. We talked about Pace and we'll talk about the spin. And we've talked about, um, you've got the more uniform, you know, you've got the uh, younger, more uniform options. Um, Pearson, we'll start with you because it is your country. Um, which four do you expect to go in um, in two days from now? Well, as much as I hate to say it, no one really knows. This should be something that two days yeah, out. That's why I want your opinion. Less than that now. Everyone should know. I would, the only person I can say for certain is Ollie Robinson. I think Ollie Robinson is very well suited to the Gabba and everyone rates him. Even Steve Smith said he thinks he'll be the most dangerous player in this series from the England bowling arsenal. I'd expect Anderson to play because it is Anderson and there's the psychological aspect of who do Australia least want to face. It's probably the bowler with 600 test wickets. I think Sane probably goes with Broad in the he has his psychological battle with Warner that he won't want to relent upon. So we will see. I'd expect those three in Leach. If they do renege upon Leach, then I suspect we'll see either Wokes because they're nervous about batting or we'll see Wood for pace. Yeah, it's interesting that when I first ran my eyes across the squad, there were the, the four that jumped to mind. Uh, Robinson, of course, had some tongue-in-cheek, so interesting to see what kind of reaction because I'm not sure what the crowd capacity is going to be like up there at the Gabba. Um, obviously dealing with their own COVID issues. Perhaps you agree with that, those four. So Anderson, Broad, um, Robinson, who I guess is the replacement for Archie, you mentioned is that dangerous bowler, the real wild card. Uh, and then Leach is a spinner? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, the 50-50 was uh, Leach or Wood. Um, I do wonder if you don't pick Wood for the first test, when is he going to play? Um, with the day-nights, you might want to go for works with the, the swinging ball. Um, and that's going to be a very big call, leaving out your, your fastest bowler in a tour of Australia. But, yeah, I am expecting Leach uh, to start, but I wouldn't be surprised if they went the other way as well. And, again, the factory in no Wacker uh, – well, not Wacker, it's the Perth Stadium now, of course, but um, no Perth test where you traditionally had the faster bouncy pitches. Um, talking of the venue, we'll just quickly move on to that. Um Obviously, Australia, a lot of success at the Gabba. 63 tests played, 41, nine loss and the 13 draws. There was a lot of talk when India, of course, won by three wickets in a, in a uh, historic test match and quite an entertaining test match, it's fair to say. Um, this past January, the first loss for Australia at the ground since 1988 against the West Indies. Um, they had a tie there, of course, famously back in 1960, which cricket historians would know all about. England's last few attempts there uh, hasn't been great, to be fair. I mean, uh, 10 wicket loss in 2017-18 for 360 runs somewhere in that region from memory um, back in 2013-14. 2010-11 was the test where uh, Australia came in. I think it was second innings, but just over a 100-run lead and then one for 500 and something. It was... Go on, Pearson. You thinking to say something? Uh, yeah, no, it was a it was a 225 first innings lead and England declared on 517 for one. With yeah, all so three top order batsmen hitting tons, Cook and well, Andrew Strauss yeah. was arguably was a good day. for LBW, but Aleem Dar didn't feel that, like yeah, hitting it. But yes, Ben Hilfenhaus, underrated bowler. Anyway, yes, he got 100 and then obviously Cook went on and had, I was reading today, that's the, the most runs, the highest average of anyone in an Ashes series in Australia of any batsman. So that, that 
Mantle doesn't go to an Australian, it goes to Englishman. Um, but when you look at their overall record, as I mentioned, 21 played four wins for England. Uh, and last win was in 1986. Then uh, some big losses recently at the weather. We've got to mention, I mean, tops of 30, 31, 29, 28, 27. So um, tropical conditions, that's Brisbane. That's what you get, but you get uh, humidity and mugginess. New look, I mean, day one, moderate chance of rain in the afternoon, day two, moderate chance of rain in the afternoon, high, moderate to high, third day, and then less on four and five. But as you've mentioned, Pearson, it's not something to look into because weather conditions can always change. Um, but it, I mean, we'll start with you again, Pierce. It's certainly looking like if there is going to be a draw, this is, you know, Fermi is a favourite in this series. It's a shame after all the build-up, but, um, you know, you can't do much about weather. Yeah, the, the first test always sets the tone of the series. England escaped with a draw in 10-11 and went on to win because we didn't lose that test. So there will be many cynical Englishmen hoping that it rains for the full five days. Of course, I'd rather us play and lose than that. But I wouldn't read too much into the weather. I think it's a dampener on proceedings, pun not intended there. But we will see how we go. I'd expect it to be very heavily rain affected. And there's not really much we can do. We have to just wait and see come Wednesday. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, you're absolutely right. Not much we can do about the weather. But um, in those last two times, Australia, I mean, you, not you knew they'd win the series, but after those those games in Brisbane, I mean, they don't, They made runs. I mean, it was Brad Haddon and Michael Clark a couple of times ago, and then Steve Smith and then Bancroft even made runs. So that shows you how unique it was um, in that test. And England couldn't get anything going. Um, I mean, surely they've got to, you know, say they're, they're bowling. You just expect broad if you can get water out early on. Then the English will be up and about, Pearson. But otherwise, you know, it could be in for a long summer. Perhaps you're thinking similarly enough. I mean, we've just got to wait and see. But hopefully we can get five days in. Yep, I'm expecting probably patches of play. Um, I think you read in the forecast it's mostly afternoon rain, so we'll see how that pans out. But, yeah, probably not a result, but the patches of play might uh, develop into a psychological battle that carries into those future tests. If one team seems to be on top of the other, then that will carry through to the, the next test, I imagine. Um, and so even though it might be rain-affected, I think it's still crucial cricket to be played. Indeed, 25 crucial days of cricket, hopefully... Um, as we mentioned, news breaking today that Perth will not be hosting a test. Excuse me. Of course, we had certain um, issues with COVID and quarantining and so on. They made a last-ditch effort to swap with the Adelaide test so the way it could work, players could come in without quarantining through Queensland. Um, that was uh, you know, pr pretty convincingly, I think, dealt with. Um, with you know, no one took that very seriously. They don't get a test, you know, that's the way it's going to be. People suggested Blundstone MCG was thrown in there for a day night. Surely the spectacle of an MCG's day night would be something big. And again, they'd want the, the viewing figures from television and all that. But um, we'll start with you, perhaps. It's probably looking at this stage more like a Blundstone. I'm not sure day night. I'm, a, you know, I'm not sure about what the lights are like down there. It's all been day test so far. But um, yeah, I mean, looking like Blundstone at the moment. So Tasmania hasn't had an Ashes test, gets a chance to have one. Yep, I think that's the strongest strongest argument here. Tasmania, equal share in uh, Cricket Australia. They want they want a test. They haven't had a test for a while. They have never had an Ashes test. Um, and so I think that it's probably the fairest thing to do, even though the, the G might bring in um, the numbers. But yeah, I, I think Cricket Australia is probably leaning towards uh, Blunton at the minute. That's what the image that the media is projecting. But then again, this is swayed. Uh, heavily in the past few weeks and we'll have to wait for the decision in the next few days. Yeah, and worst case scenario with COVID, not a pre-COVID free uh, 
Ireland, Tasmania. You think about they got. I mean, they used to get Pakistan. They might get the odd South Africa test. I mean, Australia was skittled by South Africa down there, and that could have been a donut test. Can't remember, but that was. 67 or something is a very low score. That was a dark day and, you know, New Zealand played. They don't get the big test piss and this would be a chance, as Krabs does say, they do have a Sheffield Shield, you know, they've got the lead selectors from Tasmania now. Maybe they get some more credit where it's due and they might not get the crowds, but, you know, good for fans down there. And, you know, I read somewhere you'll like this piece and that they'll like it down there because it's cooler weather, you know, it's better for the, it never gets above 26 or 27, even in the summer down there. So, you know, it might suit the climate more for, for the ponds. Well, I mean, from obviously from a selfish point of view, being that I'm in Melbourne, I'd like the test to be in Melbourne so I could attend. But I do agree. I think Tasmania do probably deserve a test at this stage of that notoriety. I do think it will be a day night to answer the question you were mentioning before. The TV audiences for international viewing seem to make it quite viable in terms of marketability for that. So I would expect it to be a day night in Hobart. Of course, it's great news we're leaving Perth because it does mean that the two grounds in which we essentially never win are the Perth and the Gabba. Perth has been cancelled, Gabba might get rained out. That's probably England's best chance in a long, long time to actually get close and win a series. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with Hobart from the cynical English perspective. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What are you doing? I'm sure there's conspiracy theorists out there, but um Talk, I mean, talking about viewing your shipment membership, I mean, Test Cricket's in a pretty good place. We've just seen a remarkable day five fight back from New Zealand. We've seen 10, ten wickets, um, you know, in an innings from a bowler. It's certainly a good place. We can't wait for it to kick off in a couple of days. Of course, uh, my two fellow, fellow panellists planning on going to all 25 of the days is a bit of a once-in-a-lifetime experience. not going to happen with COVID. Hopefully, they can get to as many as they want. Um, well, as they can, excuse me. Yeah, and I say all get kicking off. That last thing I was going to point out, always like to do it, umpires, Paul Rifle, Rod Tucker, both ex, uh, well, one of them international, one domestic cricketers. They're sticking with Australian umpires. Again, COVID restrictions. We learnt with the, well, in 2019, Ashes, we were disappointed. But in the last couple of uh, winters here, uh, we've been watching the English summers and we've had, you know, Kettlebury and Goff and these umpires who are good. Normally, Australia have good umpires as well. So that's, I, th- I think, a good thing. Uh, and... Yeah, can't wait to get into it. We should see you back here after day one, provided we get some play uh, for a little recap. Okay, thanks for being with me, gentlemen. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'll hopefully see you on Wednesday. Bye for now.